How are y'all? You're here, right? So that's, um, for some of us, that's a big win. All right, um, let's start by praying. That's always a good place to start. Father, thank you for bringing us here this morning. Thanks for sunshine. Um, I know for me, sunshine is a big part of getting out of bed happy. So thank you that today was a sunshiny day. I pray that we would be open to your spirit, his teaching and his leading in our hearts. Um, And as we study and speak together, um, may the words of our mouths and the thoughts and the focus of our hearts please you because we love you. And we pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So we are in Esther 4 today. We're getting into the meat of the book of Esther now. Um, and where do we find ourselves? What did, what did, where did Lisa kind of gave us a term for where we find ourselves in this part of Esther? The middle places. The middle places. You're right. Thank you. Um, so chapter four opens in a middle place. Death has been decreed for the Jewish people, and now they have to wait to see if God is going to remain faithful even to a people who are still living in exile. Um, And just like the Jews were in Esther's day, many of us are living in middle places. Many of us are dealing with um, a diagnosis, a broken relationship, a tough work situation, a tough, um, I mean, even just the mundane middle of being a taxi for a bunch of kids, right? (laughs) Yes, so that is even a middle place. Um, And just like the Jews, we need to remember that, like the theme of our whole study this year, that God is the purposeful author and hero of our story, that he defines our identity and invites us into lives of influence. So if you can remember, pop quiz time, this is not rhetorical question, Um, what are the four words that we are using to kind of framework our theme? They're literally on the screen right now. So if you can't remember, just pick one of those and you have a pretty good chance of getting it right. Okay, four, two of them are about God and two of them are about us. How about that? Is that a clue? So the two? Author, hero. Uh-huh. Yes, great. Author, hero, identity, influence. Today we are going to be camping in those identity and influence words a little bit. Um, so that gives us a little framework for where we're going. Leans us, we're leaning hard on those. And here's the bottom line for today. Lives of influence happen in middle places. And here's how we're going to get there. This is kind of the path we're going to take to ending up at that bottom line. We're going to do a quick review of chapter 4, and then we're going to camp out a little bit in those last verses of chapter 4 to see how our response to middle places of our lives can bring us Um, into a crisis of identity and open doors to influence. So if you had a chance to look over your workbook this week, you saw a question that asked you to divide this chapter into sections um, and give them headings. Well, I did my homework this week. Good for for me and you, right? Um, And so I'm going to use my answer to that question as a framework for how we discuss chapter four today. Please do not look at this and think, oh my gosh, I didn't do it the way she did it. I answered my question wrong. There are no right or wrong answers. This is just how I happened to do it. And I looked at it and went, hey, that gives me a good outline for today. So here we go. First thing, verses four, uh, verses one through three, first section, we see Mordecai mourning. He's in mourning. He learns about all the things that have been decreed. He tears his clothes, he puts on burlap and ashes, and he goes out into the streets wailing. 
Um, what's the purpose of the burlap and ashes? It is, uh, one, an outward sign of mourning, and two, it was to make sure that their external bodies were as uncomfortable and miserable and in despair as their hearts were. Um, so the outside, these, these, are, these are ways for a person to show that their outside is matching their inside. So that's where we are in those first few verses. And then in the next few verses, we see Esther wondering. She hears, she gets word of this crazy thing that Mordecai seems to be doing out by the king's gate. Um, if you remember, the king's gate is not a literal gate. It's actually a kind of building. And when he is in this state, Mordecai is not permitted to go into or beyond the king's gate. So um, Esther's response to Mordecai's mourning and weeping and wailing and uncomfortable external state is to send him some clothes. Um, we're not really given a reason why, but I kind of imagine in my own personal mind, I'm like, she, for me, I, in that situation, I'd be like, Mordecai, you're embarrassing me. <laughs> Maybe if we just put some clean clothes on, everything would be okay. <laughs> so this is kind of like what I picture is happening in my head. Um, so she sends him some clean clothes and he's like, kind of like, what's up? Um, it's interesting to me that the news of this edict hasn't reached the queen yet. It's interesting. So, so why is that? Is it because she's been so good at hiding her Jewish identity that people don't, like, it doesn't cross their mind that this might be relevant to her? Um, is it an indication of how removed she is from the king and the happenings of the court that she hasn't heard this, like how little power and influence she actually has? We don't know. So I always find it interesting to wonder about that. So she sends him some clothes. She asks what's going on. And here in verses 6 through 8, Mordecai, we see Mordecai asking. He shares the news of the edict. He asks it to be shown and explained to Esther. Um, and he urges Esther to reveal her identity as a Jew and beg for the lives of her people. And in the next session, I call this Esther demurs. She doesn't exactly outright decline. Um, so far, she's done everything Mordecai has asked her to do. Um, but here, it seems like she might be drawing a line in the sand. She does raise the objection that anybody who goes into the king's presence without, um, without an invitation or approval uh, will be killed. So um, a Greek historian, Herodotus, does note that um, it was pretty common knowledge that no one but the seven noble families of Persia had free access to the king. So um, this was a, was a serious thing here. Um, and she notes that she has not been invited to the king's presence for 30 days. Um, interesting that this woman whom the king was so taken with that he made her queen hasn't asked to see her for a month. So... Um, Maybe his affections toward her are cooling a little bit. Um, maybe that would make it even more dangerous for Esther to go into him. If you think about what happened to Vashti when, uh, when the king wasn't pleased, maybe he would view the opportunity to kill Esther as serving his purposes. So I can understand how Esther would have some doubts here. So Esther sends this message back, and Mordecai, in the next few verses, he promises and he he ponders. He makes her a promise, and he says, he says this, 
um, starting in verse 13. Mordecai sent this reply to Esther. Don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you'll escape with all, when the, all the other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will rise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps you are made queen for such a time as this. Do not think you alone will escape. So Mordecai is implying that Esther's thus far successfully hidden her Jewish identity. But he's also promising that somewhere, deliverance will come from somewhere else. And he, he poses the question to Esther, what if you, what if you in this time and this place are to be the vehicle for that deliverance? So what does Mordecai mean when he's making these promises and, and posing this question? Um, we don't know. And that drives me crazy. I love to know people's like, like, why did you do the thing that you did? Um, that's especially relevant in my life as a mom of two little kids. Why did you do the thing that you did? And unfortunately, sometimes the answer is, I don't know. Um, and that's what's happening here. The author leaves these things very ambiguous. Um, but in this chapter, um, we talked about this in our intro, that things are written in the way that they're written for a reason. So in this chapter, the author is also using language that echoes another part of scripture, and that is the book of Joel, a minor prophet. Um, this minor prophet, this, the prophecies were written in the pre-exilic time. So when, there is, when the Jewish people still have a land, still have a king, um, the prophet Joel is speaking. And this is what he says. This is really small. Sorry. It's how I could fit it all on the screen. So I'll read it to you. Um, in Joel 2, he says, This is why the Lord says, Turn to me now while there is time. Give me your hearts. Come with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Don't tear your clothes in your grief, but tear your hearts instead. Return to the Lord your God, for he's merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry, and filled with unfailing love. He's eager to relent and not punish. Who knows? Perhaps he will give you a reprieve, sending you blessing instead of curse. So this is another place, like the concept of fasting and weeping and wailing does show up often. But this actual like phrasing, and even though in our English translation it's not exactly the same, but in the original language it is. So this phrasing of they fasted and wept and wailed from the beginning of Esther 4 matches this phrasing showing up in Joel 2. And this, con this question, who knows if perhaps you were made queen for such a time as this, matches the question posed in Joel 2. So a lot of times when this is happening by biblical authors, um, these are like hyperlinks. So if you're on a web page and there's a hyperlink and you click it and it takes you to something else that is relevant to or informs the content on the first page. So what are we to make of this? Is it possible that the author is telling us that Mordecai has the character and nature of God in mind? Is it possible that he's remembering a previous time that God was faithful to his promise, that the exiles would return to Jerusalem someday, and that has come to pass with Cyrus's decree that we talked about in the intro? He's living in the empire that made that possible, after all. Um, we don't know, and it's an interesting thing to be wondering about. So he promises and he ponders. And then Esther, in these final verses, she aligns and she resolves. 
So far, everything in the story is something that has happened to Esther. She has been adopted by Mordecai. She has been obedient to Mordecai's instructions. She has been taken to the king's harem by his people. He, she has been taken into the king. Everything has been kind of this passive happening to her. And this is the first time that she seems to set aside her passive role and move into action. This is the first time we see her command Mordecai by saying, Go and gather all the Jews of Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will do the same. And then, though it's against the law, I'll go in to see the king. If I must die, I must die. So she calls for a fast. This is the only mention of anything even remotely religious in the book of Esther. Um, Fasting in scripture is often paired with prayer. Again, this is conspicuously absent here. That is not explicitly mentioned. Um, Can we assume that prayer was involved? I don't know. I think we can infer that it probably was. But it's interesting to me that she calls for this fast and resolves to go in to the king um, with unclear motivations. Like Mordecai has promised her she's going to die one way or the other. So it kind of feels to me a little bit like she might be making this decision under a little bit of duress. Um, But this action is clearly taken in a moment of crisis and calamity. And asking, to, asking Mordecai to call this fast and saying she will do the same with her and her maids, it kind of feels like she's the symbol of solidarity with the Jewish people. And in a defining moment, Esther seems to be aligning with the covenant people of God and courageously resolving to approach the king, not as Esther the Persian queen, but as Hadassah the condemned Jew. Um, She resolves to take action regardless of the outcome. If I must die, I must die. And we've just about reached this moment of, guys, I can say it this time, parepity. (laughs) We've just about reached this moment of parepity. If you remember us talking about this in the intro, this descent into darkness, this descent into despair, we've kind of, it feels like we've bottomed out here and now we're just hanging out here at the bottom. We're hanging out in this middle place to see what happens. Um, are we going to stay here in this dip or not? So here's the deal. We cannot always control the circumstances that lead us to middle places. The Jews did not control the circumstances that led to Haman's decree. Esther did not control the circumstances that landed her um, in the king's palace. But in our middle places, we can trust that a God who does control all things has ordered and ordain these middle places for us. And we can control how we respond when we find ourselves in them. And when we look at this chapter, chapter four, um, I see a variety of different responses in in two different people, and I think we can identify with them both. Um, First, in Mordecai. Sometimes the appropriate response to our middle place is one of mourning and begging for mercy and deliverance. And sometimes we must wait for someone else to act on our behalf. Mordecai and the Jewish people are mourning, are praying for deliverance, and waiting for Esther, hoping that Esther will act on their behalf. That's true of us. Outside of Jesus, we are a people destined for certain death. 
there is no way we rescue ourselves. And we desperately needed someone to go before the king and secure mercy on our behalf. And we have that in Jesus. So sometimes we mourn. Sometimes we align and we resolve. Sometimes our middle places, like Esther, call us to take a step of faith. And here's the thing. A response of mourning and a response of action are not mutually exclusive. A lot of times we're doing both. We mourn the middle that we find ourselves in. We beg God to relent. And we submit to his unfathomable providence. And we humbly take the next faithful, obedient step. And we see Esther taking some of these steps here. Um, First, she aligns. The girl with two names, with two identities, the only one in the whole book that has two names, finally chooses a side. She could take the easy way out. She could settle back into the comfortable life of a queen in the empire. But instead, she chooses to align herself with God's covenant people. Um, So she she aligns, and then she resolves to do what is right and what is necessary even when the ending isn't clear. So these first small steps are paving the way for God's rescue and redemption, and they had a huge impact on all of history. Our everyday middle places bring us to crossroads. Um, Are we going to take the path of least resistance, or are we going to make the hard choice to align ourselves with Jesus and obey even when we don't know what's on the other side. Uh, my middle place, if you have been in study with me for the last couple of years, you've probably heard me reference this, so I'm sorry if I'm sounding like a broken record. Um, but my middle place is that I um, started losing my vision about six years ago. Um, I do have a diagnosis, but there is not a cure. There's just management. And my middle place is that Maybe I will go fully blind, or maybe I won't. Um, In that situation, it is tempting to despair. It is tempting to, um, to worry and to wonder and try to take matters into my own hands. Um, and not to say that I don't, like, take the medicines and do the infusions and go to the doctors and do it. Like, that's not what I'm saying. Um, what I am saying is that it would be very easy, and I think the world would view it as very reasonable, to sit in a place of worry and wonder and despair and woe is me and self-pity. And don't get me wrong, I've done all of those things, okay? It's just part of being human. But the challenge is, for me is to, am I going to choose to align myself with Jesus? Am I going to trust that he knows what's best for me? Am I going to move into the faithful obedience that he has called me to, to lean and rely on him um, and not to fear, to trust that he knows what is best for me? Um, our middle spaces, it's easy for us to settle into the comfort of the world to turn to our own devices, to rely on our own idols, um, and to leave the ways of the Lord. But the reality is that Jesus is the only way to true and abundant life. 
Um, and the only way to true and abundant life through Jesus is to bring our broken hearts to a merciful and compassionate God who is filled with unfailing love to choose to align with Jesus. And aligning with Jesus and resolving to obey doesn't happen in a vacuum. Um, Lisa talked about this when she pointed out Moses and his arms being held up. When we, we can try to muscle our way into obedience, um, but that's not going to last very long. I think we're going to get pretty tired. Identifying with the people of God invites us into a family of people who stand with us and stand for us. And when we are together, aligning and obeying is much, much easier. So, um, I was listening to a podcast, a video, I don't know, I was listening to something. Um, Jackie Hill Perry is one of my favorite teachers, and I was listening to her, and I heard her say, we can know God's name and still doubt his nature. And I found that to be very interesting in the context of Esther, because I feel like the reverse is kind of true here. Um, we don't see God's name ever in this book. But the author is seeming to sprinkle in these little hyperlinks, these little clues that are intent on showing us God's nature. So we can know God's name and still doubt his nature. The reverse can be true. We can never see his name and still know and be confident and stand on the truth of who he is. Um, God always fulfills his covenant promises through his providence. I think we're seeing here that God doesn't need us to accomplish his purposes, and yet he orders and ordains the circumstances of our lives in ways that invite us to join, us, join him in his work. Why? Because somehow choosing to join God in his work makes us a little more like Jesus with every middle place, with every crossroad. And when we cry out to the Lord and align ourselves with Jesus and obediently surrender the outcomes to him, God can use our middle places to launch lives of influence. Maybe your middle place will one day be the means by which God brings hope and healing or rescue and redemption to someone else. This middle place that I find myself in is probably not going to end for the rest of my life. And who knows... Um, I wish I could tell you, like, I have this nice bow that, like, I've, I've, I don't know, like, I don't even know what I could imagine that would be the, like, nice, pretty ending that clearly God has used this middle place. But um, I rest in the hope that maybe someday I will find out that this middle place has been for such a time as this. That maybe one day this middle place will be the way that God helps someone else. That a life of influence can indeed start in the middle place. To God be the glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for middle places, even the hard ones. As we sit in them, help us to know you more. And in knowing you more, know who we are to be more. Help us to lean into a life with Jesus, to live obediently, and to watch as you work wonders. In your name we pray. Amen.